0: the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in Massachusetts, leading a retreat there with uh, Max Erdstein. And he's uh, <laughs> helped organize those retreats now for, I think, five years in a row. And it's a very uh, interesting and different experience to teach the group up there. Max's background is an interesting combination both of uh, Zen and Theravada practice. He spent many years at San Francisco Zen Center and he recently received lay entrustment from uh well mel weitzman the berkeley zen center but he's also studied theravadan buddhism quite extensively doing retreats in southeast asia and going through teacher training at spirit rock so he's uh, an interesting character in maintaining a foot in both camps and trying to maintain some kind of uh, dialogue between these different modes of practice. By and large, I'm not as open-minded as he is, uh, and it's a little harder for me to go back and forth between these kinds of groups or traditions And when we go up there, the uh, people assembled uh, can be quite a hodgepodge from uh, all sorts of different backgrounds and traditions. And the challenge is always to try to constantly sort of readjust to what, what you're saying to what they're getting and what their questions actually are. And I was trying to give them a taste of a psychologically-minded Zen practice uh, from Nothing is Hidden. And also using, as we have here, uh, Lou Nordstrom's memoir as something of a uh, case study of uh, what can go wrong in uh, Zen practice. And in any kind of practice. And in a mixed group like that, one way or another, you can sort of see or map out many di- dimensions of where people's practice has. Uh, led them astray or got them stuck in some dead end. And it's often basically the case that you know, as Aristotle says, a virtue carried to an extreme becomes a vice. That uh, You start with what seems like a good idea, but you carry it uh, to a certain kind of extreme where its flaws become manifest and you but then you're stuck and don't know quite how to back up and turn around loose case uh, in a way is a model of the uh, pitfalls of a Of a traditional top down practice, where the assumption was that Kensho, an experience of no self, would function as the kind of universal solvent for all sorts of self centered delusion and attachment. And when you had a big enough one of these experiences, it would be the big eraser, wipe away all that kind of pre-existing uh, uh, neurosis born of uh, past trauma. And I think the loose case is sort of uh, sort of demonstrates how that can fail quite spectacularly. Um, in a way in a strange way, he, he failed all the way up to Dharma transmission, right? It's this way in which coming from a terribly traumatized family background at a young age, 24 when um, he was just starting to sit sessions, he had a uh, great enlightenment experience. And that experience propelled him into (laughs) monkhood, propelled him into living in Zen communities and propelled him all the way to eventually receiving Dharma transmission and beginning to teach. And yet at the same time, The sense of traumatized unreality that hung over his life was not touched at all uh, by that experience or all decades of subsequent practice. And our discussion group, I think, will go even further into some of the consequences of what that entailed Um, but one of the things that uh, struck me was how having not had any kind of stable family or parental figures growing up he he Developed these intensely ambivalent uh, feelings about being part of Zen communities and being connected to teachers. It was the thing that he most needed and craved, and the things that was most likely to be to go badly awry and be re-traumatizing. I think the other kinds of things that were on display at Barry is we sort of listened to how other people practice over the years. Uh, One common feature was um, the example of what Lauren uh, Berlant, the feminist uh, literary critic, calls cruel optimism. and i think she may have first used that as a kind as a description of certain ideals of femininity that become standards of perfection and models of aspiration but not only are they not attainable they created an ongoing sense of self criticism and uh, judgment and feeling uh, always inadequate and failing in the face of this uh, ideal. And I think that there is uh, very commonly a kind of spiritual equivalent of that, where either the teacher... In sort of guru-like traditions, is so idealized, or there's a kind of idealization of enlightenment, or what uh, no self or Buddha nature is supposed to mean, that while this ideal seems to propel people in a towards a lifetime of practice. Uh, The way it actually functions in their life is to give them a chronic sense of inadequacy, of endlessly feeling a day late and a dollar short, never getting there, always not quite doing the right thing, not ever being quite the student they think they ought to be, and so forth. And people can practice for decades, sort of uh, somehow endlessly, using an ideal of practice to reinforce their own sense of this is not it, right? Which, you know, sadly is exactly the opposite of what practice is supposed to be uh, uh, showing us. I also uh, was thinking that we could think about how Practice goes awry for people, both students and teachers, along three dimensions. One's the dimension of mastery, the next is a dimension of compassion or service to others, and the third is a dimension of detachment. And what they all have in common is a way in which they are striving to one way or another transcend, overcome, or push away our own emotional need and vulnerability. The mastery model, in a certain sense, was what most uh, of us encountered in Zen uh, when I started out. It was a very macho practice, very much focused on endurance, sitting long sessions and uh, that were often very painful where there was very little sleep or physical comfort and the mastery of hardship was a kind of deliberate wearing down of needing anything. Right? I, can, I can take anything you throw at me. Right, I don't need physical comfort or even safety or security. And there's a kind of way in which People deliberately train themselves in toughness rather than any vulnerability. Second kind of dimension uh, is the perversion of uh, compassion or service is a... Is a focus on the needs of others, of always being the helper, always being the server, a life of taking care of others. It can look wonderful, it can do a lot of good in the world. But it can end up uh, what I called saving all beings minus one not knowing where your own needs, where the needs of the caregiver are supposed to fit into the picture. Somehow there's never enough time or energy uh, to take care of yourself. And that not taking care of yourself is even valorized as a uh, kind of selfless uh, compassion. The third dimension uh, of detachment. In part, that's uh, a description of uh, where Lu went. It's the kind of pursuit of samadhi as a as an oasis, a place where, through concentration, there is this intense sense. of rightness or even bliss or what, whatever that these uh, states bring to you, all of which give you this sense of relief from all the things that uh, were wrong in your life. But rather than seeping into the rest of your life and healing those parts that are hurt or needy, this kind of practice too often just creates dissociative bubbles. At, you know, spheres of your life or self-experience that are not just okay, but ecstatic. And the, the sort of the seeming lesson is if, if I can feel this good without engaging any of those psychological problems, well, hey, this is the way to go. And even uh, a wonderful teacher like So and Roshi, who by Lou's account was sort of the best and most authentic of the teachers he encountered in his his lifetime. And one Joko at the end of her life particularly identified with and admired. So had this kind of... uh, Sense of the wondrousness of each moment, right? Often in a very ritualized fashion, but also in a way that was very abstracted. He always chanted about endless dimension, universal life, this wonderful, impersonal, transcendent sphere. And it could be revealed in our chanting, in our sitting, or even in everyday activities. In everything but somehow going back and facing emotional pain and distress. It was the grand antidote to those things, but never uh, addressed them directly. Now, one of, just one of the points I'll touch upon in the Dharma talk of Luz that we were going to uh, discuss today is that he emphasizes not knowing and that the um, essential aspect of his Kensho experience was that he didn't know it was Kensho. He didn't know what was going on. Something happened, but there were no words for it. There was no context for it. Nobody told him what it was, he says, for years. And the dilemma that this caused is that it's hard then to say, well, what difference did it make? What changes after you've had such an experience? In a way, one of the things it did is just sort of orient him to have more experiences, <laughs> uh, to make, to devote his life to sitting and becoming a monk and going deeper into whatever that was. But also, weirdly, the not knowing means that, like, there's no way it can hook into the rest of your life. And in that that talk, there's a kind of uh, strange reaction against anybody who tries to make sense of it. He sort of says, anybody who says they know what this is, is lying. And he he sort of goes on about the great sin of institutionalized Zen is that it tries to make sense of the ineffable, of the intrinsically mystical. And sort of very oddly in that memoir, you hear him denouncing Edo Roshi, not for any of the sexual misconduct that everybody was appalled about for decades, but it's as if his great sin was building a monastery, institutionalizing Zen, where somehow Zen is supposed to be like Soen Roshi, sort of a free spirit never tacked down anywhere. I can't help but hear in that, this terrible ambivalence about finally belonging somewhere. He grew up completely disconnected and rootless, abandoned by his mother, abandoned by his father, left in the care of senile and demented grandparents that there was no there there at all and he sort of developed a whole persona about not being not belonging anywhere even of not being anyone In some ways, it's reminiscent of uh, the story of Thomas Merton, whose mother died when he was very young. He grew up very lonely. His mother was apparently hospitalized for a long time before she died. But when his father would go to visit his mother in the hospital, never brought the little boy in to see her, or say goodbye he left him outside in the car for an hour hmm. or more while he went into the hospital. And after the mother died, the father kept moving all around and he was you know, raised in a lot of different schools and different places. It was an early life of rootlessness and loneliness. And it's not hard to imagine the appeal of a monastery and a vow of stability as for somebody who grows up having no stability in their life. And yet Merton was endlessly ambivalent about their, that. And endlessly <coughs> and strangely always in pursuit of more silence and more solitude. Uh, both. To both compulsively seeking the institutional stability that he never had, but also going deeper into the solitude, which was the source of his early pain, and in there, somehow, in some way, feeling like he found God. I think that when I look at the the different ways these curative fantasies whether they're of uh, mastery or service or detachment play out I think that we when we see that they have as a common factor, the pushing away of personal needs and, uh, and dependency, I think it throws a different light on the fact of so much teacher misconduct uh, that happened over uh, these last uh, decades. I think that there's no doubt that there were a few uh, genuine sort of sexual predators uh, like Ada Roshi out there. But I think that actually turns out to be a minority of what goes awry. And I think that much more common are cases like Lou's, where the teacher gets stuck in this this role, which seems to carry to an extreme an avoidance or disavowal of their own neediness. And so often, just in the cases I think that happens with therapists who get involved uh, with their patients, the teacher or the therapist gets over-involved sometimes with the most needy student. As, and as if I'm going to get very involved and take care of their needs. But their own needs are what's getting smuggled into the picture. It becomes the vehicle for suddenly for them to let go and become vulnerable. And it's a kind of very sad side effect to the Curative fantasies that have carried them so far into practice, even to the point of becoming teachers. All right, I think I will leave that uh, there for now and we'll have plenty to discuss.